good afternoon, good evening. I am Alan Minsk, a partner with Arnold, Golden & Gregory, and I head up our Food and Drug Practice Group. Welcome to the fifth edition of our FDA podcast. I wish I knew what I know now, with a nod to the faces in Rod Stewart. It's never been more popular or trendy to be aligned with science, but I think we can agree that 2020 was a year that data, facts, and relevancy reigned supreme with the public. Uh, Despite FDA being so busy with COVID-related issues, it remained active against unlawful prescription drug promotion. With this podcast, we will be focusing on a year in review on FDA's enforcement of prescription drug promotion and enforcement trends. I am happy to be co-presenting with Genevieve Razik, who is also in our Food and Drug Practice Group. Um, We all know that FDA had a lot on its plate in 2020, but the Office of Prescription Drug Promotion, or OPDP, was still active. Genevieve, do you know how many warning letters the agency ended up issuing in 2020? Hey, Alan. Um, You know, I think that's a good question. And um, to your point, I do think we all realize that FDA was pretty busy this year um, with efforts being diverted to the COVID-19 pandemic. But still, the Office of Prescription Drug Promotion, which I think most of you on the call probably know, um, that's the office that does regulate advertising and promotion of prescription pharmaceutical products. It's still issued six letters to companies this year for unlawful promotion. And the breakdown is that it was four warning letters and two untitled letters. And um, again, I think the audience listening probably um, has heard the terms warning letters and untitled letters. You're probably familiar with the concept. Untitled letters are also sometimes referred to as notices of violations or NOVs. Both of these letters are posted to FDA's website. NOVs are typically directed to the regulatory affairs person, and warning letters are addressed to the CEO for a company. Um, And FDA really has um, pretty broad discretion. It doesn't have to issue a notice of violation before issuing a warning letter, but it can sort of take that step. And warning letters, the distinction really is that warning letters typically involve some sort of corrective advertising or um, direction for the company to take a specific action to um, correct the offense. So again, in 2020, there were six letters, four warning and two untitled letters. And if you compare that number to what we saw in 2020, when OPDP issued 10 letters, I think you can see sort of a marked decrease in OPDP activity. As Alan mentioned, the agency was pretty busy with COVID-19. They were reviewing vaccines. I know there was a shortage of personal protective equipment. So a lot of companies were submitting emergency use authorizations for face masks. There, I'm sure, were a number of questions about hand sanitizers, other FDA-regulated products for COVID-19. I think the list could sort of go on and on there with, you know, what the FDA was dealing with. But I don't think that marked decrease really signifies to companies that they should put their guard down. I think maybe the agency, you know, had different priorities in 2020. And I think companies should still be very aware of sort of their advertising and promotional initiatives. So, Alan, I know you read all of those uh, six warning and untitled letters throughout the year. I think I noticed um, that you wrote an article or a bulletin on most of those letters, if not all of them. Did you notice any agency trends or anything you'd highlight for the audience? So the letters that uh, Genevieve has referred to, just also as a side note, the FDA, not necessarily OPDP, Office of uh, Prescription Drug Promotion, but FDA 
did send a number of letters that are COVID-related, where companies made claims that their typically over-the-counter drug products were making claims that their products would sort of cure COVID-related symptoms, kind of beyond the scope of this uh, podcast, because we're focusing on prescription drug promotion. Back to your question about uh, OPDP. You know, focusing, um, a lot of the promotional materials focused on the lack of any risk information. Again, FDA being a public health organization, products that lack any risk information are are clearly going to be in the risk area or scrutiny of FDA. Often, uh, companies would provide a link uh, or a signal to where you could find the risk information, but that's not sufficient. So you can't sort of provide the good information on a piece and then sort of say, but look over there for the for the bad. It doesn't work that way. If you provide the good on a piece of paper, you have to provide the bad on a piece of paper. If you provide the good on a website, you have to then provide the proverbial bad or what we would call fair balance. You can't just simply say, here's the good, click here for the bad. It doesn't work that way. Other areas that we saw would be, you know, high-risk products, you know, those that would contain um, black box warnings, sterile products, those typically remain high-risk products, typically warning letters more so than, let's say, notice of violations. The bad ad program where doctors are encouraged to notify DA of violative promotions, those continue to remain a source by which FDA obtains information. A number of letters uh, were specifically called out uh, by FDA as being the source of complaints by which FDA then took action. Also, it was interesting, there were one or two letters where they were sent to abbreviated new drug applicant uh, holders or generic drug companies. We typically think of OPDP focusing on new drug applications or innovator companies or brand name companies, but it's important to understand that OPDP regulates any products that are application products, so that would include generic drug company uh, companies. In fact, there were two abbreviated new drug applicant companies in 2020 that received letters. It's also important to understand that time doesn't always heal all wounds. In one case, there was a TV ad to which FDA objected, but that ad was no longer running. But FDA said that was irrelevant. The damage, in essence, had already been done, and uh, OPDP required corrective advertisement. The company had to fix and had to use the same medium or form uh, to fix the original violative messaging. We've seen that with other kinds of advertisements. If, if the company used social media uh, and that was violative, they had to use social media again. If it was a website that was the source of violation, they had to use the website. You kind of get the, the gist there. Um, also, some areas that we saw uh, constant themes was where companies where the indication had a limitation of use. So the indication, of course, being what the product is approved for, but all, but sometimes there will be a limitation of use. So I'm approved for X, but then FDA specifically puts in the indication, but you are limited in that you cannot use it on this population or you cannot use it for this treatment. And that may be part of the indication, but yet the promotional material did not include that in the text. It may have been included in the, in the piece somewhere, but it was not highlighted as much as the promotional claim and FDA said that they had truncated the indication, and therefore that was uh, misleading. So those were some of the themes that we saw. So, Genevieve, I think that some of the things I noted were repeat themes from past years, such as, you know, lack of risk information, you know, black box warning products, bad ad campaigns, uh, limitations of use, those kinds of things. Were there other kind of repeat offenses or violations or warnings that maybe I missed or that you want to add? Um, Alan, uh, I think there is just one thing that I noticed um, looking at 2019 and 2020 warning letters. In one of the letters from 2019, um, FDA did comment that it had sent prior advisory comments 
about the product and a similar promotion that it was reviewing to um, the company or to its successor company, its successor sponsor. And the advisory comments had basically warned that company about the advertisement and FDA's concerns with that advertisement. And uh, based on the subsequent letter from FDA, it appears that, you know, the company failed to heed that warning. I think it's important to note that FDA did caution in that letter that prior communications with OPDP or the review division for the product, um, that's going to be correspondence between the agency and the company or maybe the prior sponsor for the product um, that can be cited in an untitled letter or a warning letter. Um, we even saw it in 2021, in 2020, um, following the letter in 2019, FDA issued a warning letter to a company. And again, it cited some previous advisory comments about the product and about the concerning advertisement and that the advertisement didn't convey FDA approved indications and it didn't convey that important risk information that's required for advertisements. So FDA noted in a separate letter, its concern um, with the previous application holder and comments that it had sent to the previous application holder that these types of advertisements would be problematic. So based on the letter in 2019 and the letter from 2020, you know, FDA has mentioned this twice. I think it's important that companies keep in mind that they need to review and consider advisory comments from OPDP. And if they are acquiring a company, they need to make sure that they get those communications that might have been sent to the prior sponsor or um, to uh, the company that held the NDA prior to when the current company is now marketing the product. So those are things that a company needs to be aware of if they're going to make a, a strategic acquisition or if they're going to start marketing a product. FDA is going to consider prior advisory comments, even if they weren't sent to the current sponsor. Um, part of due diligence would be that you would want to ask to see advisory comments from OPDP or, frankly, the predecessor to OPDP, DDMAC. You know, what were the advisory comments? Were there any notice of violations you can, are public? But it might be, was there any correspondence, private correspondence or advisory comments that the acquiring company should see? Because as you note, and as FDA notes, you're still going to be held responsible for that. Because FDA will sometimes know, we told you about this, or we told the predecessor company about it. You're ultimately responsible. Genevieve, I know that you've served on a number of, uh, on a number of promotional review committees. They may be called PRCs. Sometimes they're called LMRs or MLRs. Use your own acronym. You know, did you notice any changes this year in terms of company focus or initiatives? Um, you know, Alan, I think 2020 might have actually been a very transformative year for um, the pharmaceutical industry and other FDA-regulated industries. You know, I saw conferences turning virtual, um, and with those conferences turning virtual, necessarily the pharmaceutical booths that you would typically think of as, you know, the bricks-and-mortar booths that an attendee can walk up to you and maybe talk to a representative, those also had to turn virtual. You know, FDA this year didn't issue any guidance specific to those virtual booths or conferences. And until the agency does issue some guidance, if it ever does issue guidance about those, companies are really forced to just sort of apply existing FDA guidance that's already out there to these new sort of virtual formats. So the same requirements are going to apply um, just in a different forum. So you'll still have to comply with fair balance, uh, not make misleading statements, provide the prescribing information, 
sometimes the company might just have to come up with creative ways to do that with these new virtual booths, which I've noticed from my review this year, they do tend to be pretty space limited. So companies have had to be a little bit creative in um, turning to these virtual conference booth platforms. Um, I also saw increase in social media use. I don't think that's necessarily a trend related to COVID-19. It's just something that I've been noticing sort of a move towards social media over the past several years. And I think now, um, given people can't really interact face-to-face as much as they might be used to doing, we're going to just continue to see social media platforms being utilized and more advertising campaigns that are focused on social media. And um, my advice on social media hasn't really changed. Uh, We haven't seen much from FDA this year in regards to social media. So I think the same guidance still applies um, regardless of the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, I also noticed an increased use of email communications this year. And again, I think that's due to a lack of face-to-face detailing and an inability of pharmaceutical companies and other companies to really send their representatives out to have their typical face-to-face detailing. Um, And I think it's important to remember that emails and especially email subject lines, those are labeling or they can be labeling. So you need to make sure that you are reviewing your emails and your subject lines for your emails to make sure they comply with FDA's promotional requirements. And then the last thing I wanted to talk about, um, I did review several pieces this year that came through my MLRs or my PRCs that mentioned COVID-19. Some examples that come to mind, I looked at product-specific brochure. There was also a a scientific reprint article that a company wanted to talk about using um, that mentioned its product in relation to COVID-19. And I know COVID-19 has sort of thrown us all for a loop. We've been very focused on it in 2020 and into 2021. And I I understand companies' desire to sort of send out timely and informative information. They want to send out information that healthcare professionals or patients might be interested in reading. And COVID-19 is certainly a topic that would fall into those categories in 2020 and 2021. But at the same time, it's important to keep in mind that FDA's traditional advertising and promotional principles still do apply. So if the promotion or the marketing campaign um, is going to somehow imply that the product is going to prevent or mitigate, somehow treat COVID-19, that's going to be an off-label use, and it's likely going to be problematic for an FDA perspective. So I know you want to talk about COVID-19, but be careful if, if you're trying to go that route. So those are some of the things that I've seen in 2020. Um, Alan, I'd be interested to hear your thoughts on what you think might be coming in 2021. Sure. Well, let me just add something about um, non-FDA, but something that's, I think, relevant to, um, I'll say generally about maybe ad promo, and that's the Office of Inspector General Guidance or Alert, really, about speaker programs. I think it's only relevant because it's more of a healthcare compliance issue, but we did get several um, clients who've asked us about it, and it's something that comes up in the PRC context. Um, It kind of just reiterated OIG is part of the Department of Health and Human Services, and they kind of reiterated what is what we all knew, which is if a company is going to use speaker programs, that is typically healthcare professionals to talk to other doctors about company products, that it really needs to be legitimate, you know, educational, 
it may be promotional because it may be talking about the product, but it really should be legitimate and not just a way to pay doctors just to keep them engaged to prescribe products. That's one. So we're not paying, you know, Dr. Genevieve just to keep her happy so she'll prescribe men's products, but also we're not having a bunch of doctors, 30 doctors um, for meals, and we just keep paying the same doctors to, you know, for, for meals to get the same pitch. Most companies weren't doing that, but OIG wanted to remind people that that could be a fraud and abuse potential area. So compliance officers, general counsels are, you know, re-reviewing that and reassessing their beaker programs. So that's not FDA, that's more healthcare compliance, but it is something to just sort of look at. Now, to generate your questions, um, as many of you know, Tom Abrams, who had been the long-serving director of OPDP, he has retired. Uh, we don't really expect to see much change in policy or enforcement trends at OPDP, but it's kind of a fun fact. And you know, people have asked us, do we think there'll be any changes? I, I don't really think so. His successor, at least right now, an acting director, she's been at the agency for a while. I don't know if she will be the permanent director, but I don't think we'll see much change in policy or, or enforcement trends. We do think that OPDP will continue its focus energies, you know, going after false or misleading promotions rather than the off-label, unapproved use promotion. We're all well aware of the litigation on that. Obviously, if FDA finds good facts that allow it to go after something that's off-label, particularly if there's a public health issue, you know, FDA reserves the right to go after companies. They have made it very clear in past statements that they do think they've got the right to go after it, notwithstanding commercial First Amendment, you know, challenges, court cases, and all of those kinds of things, which we've documented and we've spoken about. So again, if they find the right facts, all bets are off on the table. Even if FDA doesn't go after a company on off-label, we, we still remind companies and clients consider product liability exposure, Department of Justice, state attorney generals, competitor challenges, you know, just to name a few. Um, there are some rumblings that OPDP, you know, might issue some guidance related to social media promotion when timing, the scope, the subject matter, all those things are uncertain, but that's obviously something that we would be following. Um, based on 2020 deficiencies that have been noted in the untitled letters, uh, warning letters, you know, we believe that OPDP will continue reviewing more closely the presentation, and I'm focusing on the presentation of risk information, such as the prominence and placement. That is, the information may be there, but how it's presented, prominence, uh, visibility, those kinds of things that's going to be, I think, a focus. That is, there's an, a little bit of an element of subjectivity about how much and exactly where. So some companies will say, well, we had it there, but the question is, yeah, but, you know, that's kind of the issue. It's clear that OPDP thinks that many promotions are not properly balanced. While in some pieces the risk information might have been present, OPDP has challenged that the placement was so small when placed in comparison or conspicuousness to the larger positive messaging, or, or it was difficult to find that the overall presentation or promotion was misleading. Similarly, OPDP was, has challenged some of the company's failure to include all of the relevant safety information from the prescribing information or alternatively making, you know, for example, easy to use claims when the product required multiple steps to use may be misleading. You know, so therefore the company should carefully review the, the prescribing information, advisory comments, if any, you know, and the whole message to ensure that the complete picture is accurate, clear, and balanced. So again, you know, the, the, the information may be, quote, there in air quotes, but was it prominent, was it clear, was it conspicuous? Have you told a complete story? 
So those are the things that I guess we would look for. I'm not sure that it's necessarily new, just variations on a theme. So I think we'll end there. We are planning to do our AGG Year in Review 2020. Uh, Seth Ray and I plan to do a webinar January 28th. We'll be sending out uh, a flyer about that. Thank uh, Genevieve Razik for joining me on this podcast. We will be doing future podcasts on topics to be determined. And with that, thank you for joining us. Thanks, Alan.